listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. This oral history project was produced by the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. We will be featuring a series of 20 interviews conducted with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. We'll be releasing one interview each week over the course of the next five months here on this podcast feed. Our first interview is with the man who deserves the most credit for the creation of a national conservation area in the Snake River Canyon, Morley Nelson. Morley passed away in 2005 at the age of 88, but we uncovered this archival interview conducted in 1990 by the founder of the Archives of Falconry, Kent Carney. The original interview was close to six hours long. We've edited it down to include the segments that we felt were relevant to the history of the Snake River Canyon. We must express our deep gratitude for the dedicated volunteers at the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry for all of their assistance in our research for this oral history project. Now, we will play you Kent Carney's 1990 interview with Morley Nelson. This is Kent Carney, and I'm at the home of Morlin W. Nelson in Boise, Idaho. It is 3 o'clock on the afternoon of the 5th of July, 1990. And I'm going to sit here and go over with Morley some of his recollections for the oral history collection of the Archives of American Falconry. I did need to check for the record the... Uh what, what is a more the W stand for? Moreland W. Nelson. Wendell. Wendell. Okie dokie. And one thing, I've, I've indicated who I'm interviewing and who I am and everything, but I wondered about you, and could you tell me when and where you were born? So we'd get that sort of... Munich, North Dakota, October 5th, 1916. Can you tell us, more like how did you first get interested in falconry? Where were you and when was it? How did that happen? Well... I was uh, about 12 years old when I got the first hawk. And what I was doing, I was herding cattle in North Dakota on their land I still have, uh, my grandfather's homestead. And I knew of the, the teal ducks. And even at 12 years old, we, were, uh, we loaded our own shotgun shells and we shot our winter meat often. We shot cranes and geese, and you could go out in North Dakota in those days, and, and uh, there were still wolves there, and, uh, and uh, shoot. By careful shooting at the head of the, of, the, of the goose, I could shoot a goose, and he'd give me four shades and say, Moreland, I want you to bring back four geese. And often I could do that, mm-hmm. because not because I was that good a shot, but I was careful. And I did what he said, and I aimed, and I had good enough coordination that I was no flinching in anything, and I knocked him over regularly. But he said, who's the he? This is My grandfather, Steen Nelson, from... Grandfather, okay. He's, uh, he, uh, he's, uh, his family came over from Norway. He, uh-huh. he came over as a young man from Norway. And um, a very rugged, big, tall, slender uh, outdoorsman, to say the least, uh, that had homesteaded there. But the thing that happened was, then I would always try to shoot the teal that lived in the same ponds. 
and of course I'd shoot at the head of the teal and I couldn't hit and they'd come down in this high speed drop that they do to land and I, as good a shot as I was, I was an amazingly good shot because I had good hunting, easy hunting, just like with falconry. It, it, you can do a pretty good falconry if you've got a lot of game. Well, it was the same way then. And I never could hit the, the teal. Uh -huh. Obviously, I was shooting a foot or two behind him. I never had a pattern that got him. And then one day, I went to water my horse, and I scared up uh, these seven teal that lived on the the uh, little pond there and I don't know whether to this day whether it was a peregrine or a prairie falcon it could have been either one uh -huh. but at any rate all I heard it coming and these teal were about 50 to 75 feet in the air and that character came down in a vertical stoop and busted one of those teal and rolled up over in the air and then took it out of the air before it ever hit the ground <laughs> and I was standing there with my horse in my hand absolutely Amazed, and I said, "Well, I got to get rid of that gun and get a hawk." <laughs> and I had been, without ever knowing anything about it. Then my dad was a lawyer and a great student from the University of uh, North Dakota, and he said, "Well, you want to get a hawk, you have to be able to take care of it." But he said, "In the old days of the kings, they flew hawks, but everybody's forgotten it. I mean, that was his position. Yeah. Nobody knew anything about falconry." He said, you can go and get a hawk, but you've got to be able to take care of it. Mm -hmm. We'll let you keep it in one of the empty stallion stalls. We were breeding horses. Uh -huh. And uh, so I went uh, out there, and, and uh, of course, I, all I found was a red-tail uh, hawk nest and thought, didn't know the difference between a red-tail and a, and a falcon. So I, I went up in a tree, and the young birds were ready to fly. And uh, the mother knocked my hat off, scared the daylights out of me, but one of the young birds flew off, and I went alone. I told my dad and my brother and, and my grandfather where I was going, down in the canyon. And, uh, of course, the, the, the hawk flew off the nest, and just like they always do, it just stood there. Yeah. I could go and pick it up. But I didn't have any gloves, so I got a stick, and I picked it up, and I got it to stand on a stick because it would attack the stick, and then I could lift the stick up. And then I, I had a nervous horse, and uh, not real nervous, but wasn't going to stand for this anyhow. And I built a, I went to a cut bank, and I built a, a, a pile of brush around there with my horse in it. And then I got, with the hawk standing on the side, I got up on the side of the bank and tried to step over onto the back of the horse without, because I couldn't get up in the saddle and do this. All I had to do it from above, so I could sort of jump into the saddle. <laughs> and I got into the saddle all right, but when I moved down quick enough to get in the saddle, a quick hawk opened her wings and, yeah. and that did it. The horse jumped the barricade and busted the hawk and me off. And then, uh, then I, um, I, of course, the horse, the horse the, I had the reins back, so the horse just ran home. Uh -huh. And the cowboys at home, my brother and my dad and granddad all said, well, Moreland's fallen off his horse, we'll have to go find him. So they just got on their horses and came in the pickup and came riding down the canyon. And I was walking home with this hawk standing on us on a stick. And this and then the, the thing that that uh, amazes me, my grandfather, who when he lost one chicken, that meant the egg supply for a whole year was gone for the whole family. It was a major loss in the days of the homesteads. Yeah. This is why everybody was so violent about the chicken hawk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because even though the red tail may not have been what caught him, most of his goth hawks and jerfalcons were there and prairie falcons. But 
boy, let me tell you, when they said chicken hawk, they really, that was a serious, serious problem. And, uh, but when I got this hawk, and I kept it in the, um, in the stallion stall, sort of like you'd, you would do, do now. And you know how nice red tails are, and I fed it. I shot mm -hmm. rabbits and ground squirrels and all, and had meat from the thing. And, and I, I had a glove, and that's all I knew about, and that's really all I had to do. It would get on my fist and ride around. When I want to get it, it would come back. Mm -hmm. And then I'd walk into the, into the stallion's stall at night and put it down. And then I'd open the door and the next day and walk in and get it, sort of like I do with uh, Thor today, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not even realizing what I was doing. And, and then I could hunt with it. It was cottontails and stuff around there. It would, uh, but what got me was all the people that hated them, all these homesteaders around there, a goddamn chicken hawk, they'd just blow their stack about. But they came and looked at that hawk on my fist and said, I don't know, it's a pretty doggone nice bird, you know, they, mm -hmm. they dropped it just like they do to this day with the yeah. eagles and what I've been doing every year since yeah. without ever recognizing it until lately that I recognized, well, I shouldn't say lately, I, I recognized after Disney started that by going to a meeting with an eagle on your fist or a hawk on your fist was the way you made a great success compared to going there and yapping about it. Yeah. If you, especially an eagle, because it's so big it challenges everybody, they say, well, he must know what he's talking about or he wouldn't be able to handle that big bruiser. <laughs> so that was, a, that, that was the way it all started. So you essentially just started with the red tail then. That's and, right. And uh, did you have any other birds then? Or what kind of birds did you have? Well, I, 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 then, then I got, uh, um, I saw the Jerfalcons yeah. that lived on, in the winter on the ranch. Mm -hmm. Still do. And the occasional peregrine. But the Jerfalcon was in the prairie falcon in the wintertime, but especially the Jerfalcon. See, this is the northern tip of North Dakota on the Cheyenne River mm -hmm. I'm talking about. Okay. A typical place where there's some warm springs where the Jerfalcons came down in the winter. Mm -hmm. They still do, mm -hmm. a lot of them. Jerfalcons are a fairly common bird on the northern edge of North Dakota in some winters. Yeah, it's amazing, you know, that they, and maybe I shouldn't interject here, but it seems to me that they keep finding them. And you know, more and more people are flying them, and I don't think that it's it's that all of a sudden this is new. I think they've been coming down there for centuries. We're just able to get out in a little bit more. But have you lived there? So, absolutely, right the there. birds there were there were jer falcons there every winter mm -hmm. because they were the big rascals with the quick wing beat, none mm -hmm. of this floating around. And yeah. I recognized them then as falcons. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that's a falcon, and it were white ones and gray ones and black ones, I saw all of the color variations mm -hmm. right in the, in the grove at home because yeah. the great big dead uh, cottonwoods is where they'd come and land and then they'd go out over the area and catch stuff. No, there's no doubt about it. The, the, the northern part of North Dakota and around where the hot springs are now, there's somebody up there now, Bill Greer, Greer and... Uh, uh, yeah, and somebody else is up, a couple of falconers up okay. there that are finding jar falcons hanging around there in that area that I was where uh -huh. there's some warm springs I off see. to the west there. Uh -huh. And they're coming down there and they're common. And there's no doubt about it, the, the bird was fairly common because you could see them. And I always got a thrill when I saw them, but now I didn't count them or write them down. But what I mean, I'd see two or three a month yeah. or more right there in one place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, it shows you what was going on. Yeah. So I'm sure that they've been coming down there uh, probably more than ever, and they still are. And even now, 
there's very few people get out there 30, 40 below zero when those characters run, unless you live there, mm -hmm. that know enough to watch them. The falconer don't get that good a chance to go out, mm -hmm. but they're finding them pretty often too yeah. there. Well, then, then, then when I came out to, then I, I went down to, uh, uh, I started to, to correspond with the, uh, the Craigheads after they put their, uh, well, first off, I, I then got the article 19, I've got in here, isn't it, 1933, July, Falconry, the Sport of Kings and oh, National Geographic. December 1920. Okay, okay, December 1920. But the falconry of the sport of kings. That I went back and looked that one up. Yeah. Then I really got, uh, because the book that I had, I can't remember, going from the ranch to the moving into town and all, I can't remember. I lost it somewhere along the line. And, but it, it was, I can't, uh, I didn't pay enough attention to it. I read it in a great rush and I read the things I wanted. I can't remember what in the world, whether it was a, some kind of a pamphlet or a book. It seemed like it was a thin booklet. Mm -hmm. I have never read anything since that I could say was the same thing. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, uh, then I, when I got to this falconry, the sport of kings, then I had been far enough down the trail and talking with the Craigheads, and that was during that period. And then the Craigheads wrote uh, their story about, uh, I have still have their book, uh, and of course uh, all that, that was in there, but uh, the the thing that happened when I then I went from from North Dakota in 1938 to uh, Mexico and to Las Cruces, uh, where I worked with the university there, uh, New Mexico State, and uh, on a research soil survey and straightening the Rio Grande between the United States and Mexico. Did you did you go to school at? Uh well, I was a I was an associate State? Okay. research man there okay. at the at, at Las Cruces, Las Cruces yeah. with right. the uh, see it's a state uh, thing and they had soil scientists yeah. there and I was working as a soil scientist engineer. I see. And uh, so then here I was finding prairie falcons and the peregrines there mm -hmm. with, were there you know on the turn I can't remember the name but there was a pair of peregrines right there on the on the um, on the uh, on the Rio Grande. Yeah. And little cliffs there. Mm -hmm. And of course I thought, well, I'm going to get one of those, but I was on the mobile survey, so I didn't get to stay there. I went down towards the bend and I saw more of them down there. And then I came back, and then in 1939 they shipped me up to Tremont, Utah. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, by then I had uh, prairie falcons and uh, peregrines that were living there, and that was when I saw all the peregrines leave before uh, DDT. Mm -hmm. okay. All of those peregrinaries that I knew around the Great Salt Lake and off to the west and up on Little Mountain uh, south of Tree Mountain were all replaced by prairie falcons right while I was there before 1942 when I went to war. Every single one. Before 42 even. Before 42. Oh, okay. Before I went to war. Yeah. See, This is why I wrote that thing about the drought. Yeah because I couldn't figure out those peregrines living on Little Mountain had 15 miles to go to get to salt water even. Mm -hmm. And that was 28% salt then because there was, the, the, the lake was 950 square miles instead of 2,700 like it is mm -hmm. now. I see, yeah. And that was when I got, and then I went out, and then and in 19, uh, then I went to war mm -hmm. in 42, 
Well, but before I went to war, I had all of these, and then I came back to Salt Lake in 46. Well, before you went to war, was there anybody else in that area practicing falconry, or had you associated with anybody else? Well, in Webster and, and, uh, and, and old George Bradshaw was okay. there working with me. Now, uh -huh. he didn't follow it. Yeah. He went through it while he was studying engineering, and then he went to work uh, eventually for Morrison Knutson in Pakistan and all over the world. You're talking about George Bradshaw. Yeah. I see. But he never did go beyond the, the he got a peregrine yeah. from Little Mountain, and he flew some prey fog. And then when he graduated, then he came up here, and George and I went to get tundra together. Yeah, yeah. okay. That was in 1948. Yeah, after you got out of the service. I'm yeah. Sure. I, I got out of the service first in Salt Lake. Yeah. Then I went to all those IREs I knew in 42. Yeah. Every single one had a prey falcon. Okay. Uh-huh. Right in the same hole in some cases. Mm -hmm. And this is when I said, and everything was so dry, it was it was a salt flat for 10 miles to the water. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And the only place you could live was the dams they built on the Bear River. Yeah. And they were getting birds that were getting botulism because of the peregrines there that would come by. We'd, we'd get as many as three peregrines there at one time because they'd go and eat the botulistic ducks yeah. and then they couldn't fly and you mm -hmm. could get them and if you fed them right they came back around. I have I have a beautiful picture of one of those big black ones because Salt Lake was then the smokiest, third smokiest city in the nation <laughs> and that bird was just black, it wasn't big like blacky but it was dark just from the smoke. Just from the soot, I've the got smoke. one in, in my file uh, of a bird, a haggard Falcon that I loved, powerful big haggard. Okay. I, I got her and flew her as a haggard, uh -huh. and then I was I was a uh, uh, that was after the war. I'm yeah. talking well, about now. Before the war, were you flying ISs mostly, or were you trapping at all? Uh, I didn't. Uh, the only ones that I flew that before the war. Let's see now, 42. I had a uh, well. Yeah, we trapped. I trapped a uh, a uh, what would be a um, a brancher. Only it may have been a uh, just a beginning, really early, early flying passenger. Mm -hmm. I don't know where it really yeah. came from. Yeah. Uh huh. That was prairie or prairie? Prairie falcon. Uh huh. And um, then I had. Let's see. I had a. Uh, oh no! Before the war with just prairie falcons. Mm -hmm. After the war in 46, I yeah. then I I flew nothing but passage hawks. Mm -hmm. okay. I, I, uh, and I trapped a, a haggard uh, prairie falcon called Monty that could catch short-eared owls a thousand feet in the air. Was most one of the most powerful birds I've ever flown in my life. Mm -hmm. I got a picture of her too. Her uh -huh. name was Monty. I was still going on crutches when I trapped her. And then of course I trapped Peregrines uh, there around uh, Salt Lake, but the, then the peregrines were getting damn scarce. What were you using for? What kind of a trap were you using? Well, I used I used a net, and I I, I trapped with a bow net, yeah. and I trapped with a double dogaza, yeah, with an angle, see, yeah, uh, and and I can tell you this, which is interesting now. The I went out one morning alone because I was the only falconer there. D. Doctor D. Porter. Yeah. 
I know he never really did fly falcons, but he took a young uh, peregrine, mm -hmm. the last one that lived above uh, above uh, Ogden. Yeah. And that prey falcon took over, right? Nice. You know, they lived together there, those two. He's got yeah. that story there. Anyhow, uh, he didn't, but, uh, and there was another falconer that, down in Provo, you must know his name. He, he, yeah, I can't say his How name. How about J. Clyde Ward? All right, J. Clyde Ward I'm talking about. Yeah, all right. J. Clyde Ward was down there, and he came up and saw one of my passage dogs flying. He just absolutely flipped. He said, my God, look at it, Pitt. Of course, it came from way up, you know, and it mm -hmm. just went way back up. Yeah. On it. What were you flying them at those days? Oh, I hunted ducks and uh, crows uh -huh. and uh, pheasants. And, uh, and before that, in 1939, we, we started hunting um, uh, sage hens in, um, up there in uh, uh, Snowville. Mm -hmm. yeah. See, there were oh, sage hens all over the place. Yeah. You can imagine, the sage hens just overran the place I in those see. days. Yeah. Uh -huh. And, the, and the, the only thing I can remember is they never caught one that you couldn't see through his tail. See, the big adults, you mm -hmm. can't see through their tail. I see. I see and we that. were catching females or younger yes, ones with yeah. the... And they weren't hard because there was a lot of them and, and I didn't... And it was, we had to go, but see, we could just go out of Tremont and we could just go out of uh, Tremont in a mile and we had the fanciest duck hunting in the whole world uh -huh, uh -huh. and pheasants all over the place and everything else. Uh, there weren't... Uh, Mostly pheasants, yep. not not hung, Hungarian partridge or anything. They were, but and then, uh, but we did that in 1939, and 40 and 41. Yeah. Okay. Before I and 42. Before I went to war, we goofed around with that, and I did that alone there after George left uh, for, um, and that guy just came up to see me and to go down the river this year. D. Adams, Don Adams, where I stayed uh, there. Uh, the the uh, uh, when when George left, I kept uh, fussing around there and uh, and flying. I'm talking before before '42, before the war. Yeah, right. And the uh, the uh, but the hunting was so easy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because you could just you could look out in the field and there'd be half a dozen felons and you put your hawk up. And you had any kind of a puny dog. That's why I still use a puny dog. You don't have to have a pointer because there were so many birds. You always got a fly. And, and, and of course, that's what makes the hawks. Sure. When you got the quarry, that's what's wrong today. If you don't have pigeons, you can't make your hawk wait on and stay with you. You've got to have something different. In those days, there was no question about getting a flight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was when, 1946, and we, we, we did... Uh, I did uh, try crows, and I found out that they're damn hard. I had a hell of a time. Catch, I could catch all the other game birds easier. Yeah. But when the war came over, then I took an interest in 46 when I was still in the hospital. I started this. I read the, you know, the old book, uh, uh, The Art of Falconry. Frederick II. Frederick II. Yeah. And he said, if you think you got a good hawk, uh, try a short-eared owl sometime. Yeah. Well, I found out that you've got to have a good hawk to get a <laughs> short-eared owl. But I had that prey falcon, Monty, that would go up and go above the owl, dive down below it, and roll over upside down and grab its feet with its feet. With one hand, it'd hold its feet 
and gra grab its head with the other one and roll it back down and break its neck in the, uh, in the sky and come down. And I could do it any time I wanted to. That takes some doing with a short ear. Well, I'll tell you. Hard to catch up with. I haven't done it since. <laughs> I, c okay. I could maybe do it, but I'd have to have a haggard prairie falcon. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This was a haggard, was it? Not this was a haggard. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Called Monty. I, I trapped her on Tree Mountain. See, mm -hmm. because here I came back, there were no laws, no nothing. Sure. And it was uh, in the fall. Yeah. And I said, well, I know where there's uh, these birds live. And I just mm -hmm. went out there with a pigeon and Dogaza, and I trapped a, a haggard powerful, like a gerifalk, and it could take a rooster pheasant like a goshawk, just chase it right down and grab it, mm -hmm. every time. Mm -hmm. And it could catch ducks and everything, you know, that was when I wrote to the Englishman that I had this tremendous per desert hawk, they mm -hmm. called it, and they mm -hmm. said, oh, come on now, nobody's ever had a desert hawk that, that can do that yeah. crap. Well, now we know that the prey falcon can do it if you do it right, but then, but then, See, I went back to where the peregrines were, and no peregrines, always prairie fowls. And that was when I, that was how come when, the, and, and it was all over. I came up here to, in, in all right, uh, 46, Al sent me uh, Blackie. Then I moved up to Idaho, and it's I had to... L9. L9. And that's the blackbird that came from the east. The big right, one that you had for Boys 8. That, that okay. Boys 8, the other two. Yeah, I just want to... You got the story. I got the story from Al. All right, now there was the first time when I got my eyes open, I could hood that bird the first year I got it, just like you have now. The second year after it molded, I couldn't hood it. And so I never hooded it again. It just fought me just like like Thor. I can't hood Thor. I got to do it in the dark. I could have hooded Blackie in the dark. But she didn't need to. She understood it all. But the thing that got me about it, when I realized that there was something mighty, mighty different. That was the first time I ever realized it, and that was before I came up here and she laid the eggs. See, I had eggs in 1949, six eggs okay. from a peregrine. Okay. I think I probably had the first eggs of anybody did in mm -hmm. North mm -hmm. America with Blackie. Yeah. And not knowing what I was doing, except I built a house, just like I got for Thor, and I put her in there, and then I put Loft Meredith and Stabler both sent me peregrine tiercels. Yeah. And I put in there, and she, I just barely saved her life and sent him back. <laughs> and yet she did all this for me, like yeah. you're talking about. That's why I wrote 1950-something, that if you ever had to raise peregrines, it would be relatively easy. I wrote in the Falconer's Journal. Mm -hmm. Well, it was true. The techniques were already there. Yeah. It just that we didn't understand what... It, I, I looked at it and said, well, God, if that's what you got to do. I didn't under, understand the imprint, but I understood the potential. Yeah. Well, but what, 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 what's so funny about this, before that ever happened, in 1946 or 47, when I was in Utah, I caught one or two ducks a night and a pheasant with Blackie and another passage or haggard prairie falcon that I had. Yeah. Okay. But that wasn't got me. One night I went up there and I still had draining wound in this leg. I walked about two miles after work, and Blackie was up there a thousand feet, and there were no ducks because somebody had come with the dog and scared all the ducks. Uh -huh. Okay. I walked there, and just about dark, and then I thought, my God, I'll have to call her to the lure, which 21 days I never showed her the lure. She took something uh -huh. in a row, yeah. more than one, sometimes two or three in an evening. I never showed the lure. Uh -huh. 
She understood it just like Thor does right now. And he, she would fly home without feeding. And this is when I realized what, when I realized when Thor would catch something for me and fly home here, that that's the first time in the history of falconry anybody ever recognized the fact that the bird understood it didn't have to eat in the field. Mm -hmm. And I had six people or seven people with me all of these times and that bird would come in and take something. But the first time that happened was Blackie in uh -huh. 1946. Yeah. Only I didn't recognize it. And this is the story. I was going along there and uh, I'd walked all these miles and swung my lure yeah. and it was getting dark. And here she is a thousand feet in the air. I said, come on, get me a duck. Yeah. And I couldn't get a duck up. And dog, I had a big dog run along, and we couldn't find a duck or a fin because we were right along the edge. And all at once I thought, well, I've lost my falcon. I cannot believe I would have lost this falcon. Mm -hmm. The gentlest, most articulate, closely related falcon to me that I'd ever had up to that time. And then I was standing there and looked up and she disappeared. And I said, oh, it's impossible that she would go in not not come back. Mm -hmm. So I was standing out there, looking up in the sky, hello, swinging my lure, swinging my lure, swinging my lure, looking around there, and all at once, back, 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 back. She was on the ground, waiting for me to turn around and pick her up, didn't have to swing the lure. <laughs> she understood, mm -hmm. just like Thor does, that I'm with him and it don't, the lure is all right, but I don't have to have it. Now, um, just, just for the record, Thor is the I.S. White Jure Falcon that Jerkin that you've got that you got here now. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. That that Thor is the one that I couldn't believe it myself. It started going home when I couldn't put game up. Yeah, that's understandable. I've had that with a lot of falcons, mm -hmm. the peregrine I'm flying now and tundra and a lot of others. But what got me was when I went out here and caught a pheasant, and and she knocked it down and stood there. And I went over and picked her up, and she stood on my fist, says, okay, that's it, and turned around and took off and flew home. Mm -hmm. Never this took a bite. This is Blackie. The, no, this is Thor, Thor now okay. that I'm okay. talking about. Yeah. This right. is, I'm jumping from one end okay. to the other from, okay. uh, that's a terrible jump. But right. what now I have realized, the strength of this imprinting business, uh -huh. that we, that I didn't, nobody even knew the word imprinting there. They said it's an IAS. Well, okay, but an IS could be imprinted or not. That's a different exactly. proposition. Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> but what got me is here, the fourth time I went out here, and she caught a, a pheasant, I'm talking about Thor now, caught yeah. a pheasant, the white deer falcon, and he stood there and waited till I got there, and then he kept saying, okay, I caught it for you. These words that he said to me, as Thor did, were the same words that Blackie said in the old days. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't recognize them then. Mm -hmm. But here's what got me. When Thor got that, I'm took, 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 and he gets up here and says, okay, I've done it for you. Jumps up and flies home and comes to the lure when he goes home and gets in here. Now that is, I've got to write that up, but, but that, the details of that are, are really amazing. And I really believe that Thor did not like to ride in my pickup the 10 miles home or whatever, however far I was out, <laughs> because it's so bumpy. Sure. And I feed him and put him in there, and then I get him home and pick him up and feed him and take him up and then put him in his house. So he said, I'm just going to skip that. I'm sure this is where, what he decided for himself. Yeah. That old boy will always come home, and he'll fly me to the lair when I get home. 
And the same thing, I went out here to do the film with the Rulers of the Wind uh, PBS uh, uh -huh. Nature Series. And uh, they said, well, you'll fly Thor. And I said, well, now, wait a minute. You, uh, Thor, I'll go home. And they said, no, no, no. You mean he'll just leave and go home? And I said, yeah, I can only do that once, and he'll probably go home. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. They said, nobody ever heard of such thing. <laughs> so, of course, he comes down to, the, to, to me once. Yeah. And and uh, to the lure, yeah. and I took that family and said, okay, what falcons you could fly him again? Let him go. Mm -hmm. He goes home. <laughs> he, he says, I'm not going to goof around with that. Yeah. And this is how that got started, see. Mm -hmm. And then I realized all at once, which uh, it's still hard for me to recognize that they're that intelligent, but now it, there is no doubt about it in my mind. And this is why I went for the the falcopomorphism uh, and uh, aguilapomorphism thing after Carl Sagan said it's audacious of humanity to have only one word, anthropomorphism. Mm -hmm. And animalpomorphism, when my dogs talk to me and when my hawks talk to me and my eagle talk to me, they're giving me eagle characteristics in their mind and that's aguilapomorphism as far as there is no question about what that's what it should be. Mm -hmm. Okay, now, I've said this, as you know, in several meetings where people said, yeah, it should go both ways. Well, I'm going to have to write that up someday in, in detail. I've been saying this on national television and everything else, but I'm going to have to write that up because I think that the understanding, that like my grandfather started with me, when I was 12 years old and I first had that hawk, my old grand, I had the biggest... His name was Slim, the fastest horse there was in the county. I could beat anybody. And it was nervous. But my granddad and I admired that horse so much, and it would talk to me, and it would nine, it would do all that stuff. It was an imprint. Mm -hmm. Raised from a colt by this, this same deal. Okay. My dad said to me, or my granddad, don't ever put Slim in the pasture alone. He'll be, he'll be lonesome. And I thought, well, that silly old man, that great big horse would never have to be lonesome. He is the most powerful, biggest thing in the world. But now I can just see old Gramps smiling at me because I've gone completely the other direction. And there is no, the, the data is absolutely irrefutable yeah. on, on this function. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you look at somebody like Thor, who when you think would never have the intelligence to think this stuff through and to be so positive of it, that would he come home, and Blackie did in 1946. Mm -hmm. She came home there? Well, I didn't have the place for her to come home there. But what she would do is follow me and come and sit down. Mm -hmm. okay. and, and, and when, uh, see, I had Blackie up here at one time. I'll never forget it, same deal. When did you come from Tremont to, uh, to Boise? Uh, well, I went to war from Tremont, yeah, see, okay. and then in 48, I went from Salt Lake, or, see, at first I was in Tremont until 42, then I came back to Salt Lake in 46, Okay. at the end of the war, yeah. and then I came up here in 48. I see. Okay, okay now I had Blackie up here. Mm -hmm. Now, the same thing happened. Mm -hmm. I was out with the boys, hunting with Blackie. Yeah. We caught a duck, and we caught crows, and I got beautiful footage of a blackie taking crows. And that's very difficult, Corey, but she would But your, your movies then go back that far. 
Oh yeah. To, to Blackie and all. So, oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got That's movies good. of Blackie in here. Uh -huh. Taking a bath, and Tom Cage says, "My God, she's bigger than the Jerry Falcon I'm giving you," and it was mm -hmm. bigger than the than the Jerry Falcon he gave me, <laughs> and it was a female. But anyhow, the thing that the thing that I was talking about here was, one day I was out here hunting over by Nampa, and I trained Blackie experimentally after reading that book. I did that with Monty. I was I trained her to catch geese. Mm -hmm. And that was when uh, T.B. Murray, the head of the Idaho Fishing Game, there was no law. I said, I have a falconer's, I have a collector's permit for the University of Utah. He said, that's fine. And I said, I'll get one for Boise State, which I did, and for University of Idaho. If they want anything that I catch with this hawk, they'll have it. Sure. And I caught one of the only black-faced uh, ibises they have at University of Utah with a falcon, huh. goofing around in 46, too. She could catch, I, could, I experimented with everything. Ibis, mm -hmm. geese, crows. I didn't go ravens until we had tundra. But the, the thing that got me about Blackie, the thing that I'm, I'm going on here now is, I went out here hunting with Blackie one day, and we were hunting with the guns, and we had to hawk along. I said, oh, we'll catch one with the, with the uh, very few people uh, around uh, in the, out in the wilds, and uh, we'll catch one with a hawk too. Mm -hmm. We did. Yeah. And it got dark. Mm. And she caught the duck. We saw it. Yeah. We saw her dive out of the sky and, and bust a duck like she was terrific at doing it. But we couldn't produce her. We couldn't find her. She was a mile off when she did it. So I said, out of faith, and my dad said, let's not go home till it's pitch black. He felt the way I did. He was with me that day. And so I thought, well, all right, I'll go up here on the hill within a half a mile where we last saw her mm -hmm. and call. Mm -hmm. Yo, I went up there, it was dark. Here comes old Blackie with a full crop. Mm -hmm. I went out to the post, picked her up and put her in the car and we went home. That's an imprint, you see. Yeah. That was the same thing I was getting as Thor's, understanding mm -hmm. the whole situation, yeah. which you can't expect of any other Ayas mm -hmm. or any passage hawk. Mm -hmm. They just don't think that way. They haven't, they haven't, they're, they're completely different. So the whole, in my opinion, you have to write a whole new book on flying Ayas, uh, on flying imprints, imprints yeah. as opposed to the others. But what got me about this is, and what I'm so enthusiastic about this is, <clears throat> because there came through all of this a wisdom of the wild thing that uh, started by the Craigheads that I want to do a whole film on. And the wisdom of the wild has these strange things that they were the first to mention. And I have lived it now. I've watched this fabulous aerial combat down in the Snake River Canyon for mm -hmm. 40 years. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that matches the combat between an eagle and a prairie falcon and an eagle and a prairie falcon and a red tail when they're fighting for nesting sites. Mm -hmm. And since there are so many, it goes on every day down there and it is absolutely fantastic. But they never kill. Mm -hmm. I have never seen one kill. And ho here comes Hornocker and here comes the Craigheads and all of these people say, and I went with Hornocker and did that film, the mountain lions fight over their nesting and their female. They never kill. The grizzly bears fight over their things. They never kill. And 
the falcons and the eagles do the same thing. And humanity did it once, just the other day, when they knocked the red communist in the head and didn't fire a shot. <laughs> yeah. I believe there should be a film on the wisdom of the wild which goes into such depth that it shows this fabulous, you cannot believe the intricate aerial battles that go in that canyon in the spring that I've watched for you know, 40 or 50 years. And we've tried, we put it on in a couple of times. Uh, and the courtship the same way. It, it's just beyond what you can believe. And that, that all comes from, from understanding the imprinting uh, of these birds and getting so close as to believe that you can really, they can understand you and you can understand them. Mmm, Martini outdoors. You're throwing things away. As long as you're not throwing any of Molly's stuff away. Well, anyhow, uh, this is a, this is a, um, this is a uh, thing that I, uh, uh, some of the things that I haven't uh, discussed with anybody, uh, uh, and and it isn't until the last five years until Thor came along that I became so completely. Uh, in understanding because I had a home where I fly the bird and she considers it home and defends it. Now, when I go out here and start flying Thor, any other person, male or female, is a problem to Thor because he says that person is a problem for, is competition for my mate, me. Mm -hmm. And he knocks them on their butt. <laughs> I have a picture of him knocking Brian Tar over. He's trying to protect himself in the head, and she hit him so hard, she knocked him over backwards on right. film. And and Lucy and Mike, she put split their hair, bloodied both of them the same oh, night. See, when she says, he says, you guys are getting too close to my mate. Yeah. Get your butt out of here. Bam, here he comes out of there with this ungodly velocity. <laughs> Split him right down the center and cut a big hole above her. Uh -huh. Well, now, the point that I'm making, you see, is now I'm beginning to understand all of this. Now, you said the same thing about your hawk and your male and your female to Jim Weaver, and he understood mm -hmm. what you were talking about, giving the giving the prey back to Weaver him. told me that, actually. it was That's Weaver's thought. I don't want to... Well, anyhow, yeah. you two guys had this. Uh -huh. You you got this together. Now I'm 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 going along the same track. You see, yeah. where where they're looking at me and and going through this and understanding the whole family relationship. Sure. There's no the data is irrefutable when you go with Thor. I can take give Thor a quail and take it out of his mouth with my mouth and he'll just talk 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 talk. You know. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's just amazing how. And then, and he does his dance like they do, you know, in the wild. He holds his things up and carries that rock and does yeah. his dance and all the courtship things. And all the words he says are the same as the wild falcon say, and everybody's got this. But, but when you can turn around and let him go and have him uh, fly home and recognize what he defends as home, yeah. when, a, when nobody can come over us uh, and, and, uh, without him knocking it out of the yeah. sky. It's, it's a whole new, it's a whole new experience, you know, that uh, these these imprints have given us. Some people don't like them, but I'll tell you, they're 
Well, you that's the way I say it has to, it has to be rewritten. Mm -hmm. You see, what was so fabulous, and it's now Thor is man enough to catch anything, any haggard or any any passage hawk, but he's going to have to be ten more years before he can match money, not in strength, mm -hmm. but in knowledge of flipping upside down and grabbing the owl's feet with yeah. one foot and his head with the other one and flipping over and breaking his neck in the sky like that Monty did. Now come on. I tell you, Old Tundra really put on a show that was, that guy had those fabulous eyes, this were in Seifert. We went out here south of town and I said, well, I can catch anything. Yeah, you know, when I try, I, I caught ravens, I still got to get that footage from, that's the most classic footage of all, of Tundra taking two ravens. Who's got that? Uh, Roy Disney. Oh, I've asked him about it. I said, Roy, mm -hmm. we couldn't use it because when she brought it to the ground, it landed by a fence pole that was supposed to be in the Arctic. Yeah, see? okay. If I ever get that footage, people are going to say, wait a minute, because mm -hmm. that is the most difficult quarry there is. He's a raven because they grab with their feet like a hawk and they got that great big beak and you got to be a tough son of a gun that's done a lot before mm -hmm. you can do that. And Tundra was just like Thor. She was a tough one. The The thing about um, uh, when, I, when I first came up here to Idaho, there were nine falcons from here, prairie falcons from here to Arrow Rock Dam. Now there's one or two left. I see. Mm -hmm. And there were two, three eagles there. Now mm -hmm. there's one. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and and the, uh, the, but the, when I came here and saw that river running through town, the Boise River like it is here, and trout jumping in the river, and I went up here less than 10 miles and found three prairie falcons and a golden eagle, I said, this is where I want to be. Mm -hmm. I figured there would be peregrines all over, but I couldn't. That was uh, after, 48. yeah, mm -hmm. and 48, and the peregrines were already going way down. Yeah. So I found where the peregrines had been, and I found a few new ones. I think that I published them. There was 17 pairs that we knew of, or somebody knew of, that I checked on, that were not there, mm -hmm. and all gone. Yeah. And uh, then, of course, I saw the ones there at Swan Lake, and at uh, the other places where they'd been before. Swan Lake was one of the last ones and then I you found Swan Falls or no 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 no, no Swan no. Lake Swan Lake that's okay. over by Preston oh okay on the Malad River okay and uh, then I found uh, the last one north of Salmon um, I found the Irie and I told the Craigheads about it and the Craigheads were going down from Salmon to Missoula and lo and behold here was a baby peregrine that somebody had caught on the road they lived about a quarter mile off the road in a, little, in a canyon there. Yeah, that was the last known. That was about 1966 or something like that. Yeah, I'd have to look that up. Uh -huh. I got it in the book someplace. Anyhow, then they, I told them where the bird was, and I said they wanted to bring it back to the island. I said, I said, well, the Irie's right there. You found it just a quarter of a mile west of the Irie, and mm -hmm. so they went back down and put it at the iron and the birds adopted it. There I was see. another one there. Uh -huh. At the time I was doing this, I thought, well, who gives a shit about the peregrine? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the eagle is the one that everybody shot and they had clubs to shoot the eagle and here was the peregrine living above the eagle and there were 10 times as many golden eagles being shot. I had 14 of them here in the front yard. Yeah. Bullet hole in this county. Uh -huh. 
And uh, I wasn't worried about the peregrine. Mm -hmm. And yeah. here comes uh, the the doggone uh, DDT, yeah. and the peregrine goes down the tube. And the eagle is doing better than any of them still is. Uh -huh. Morty, when did when did you first get interested yeah. in the uh, in the in the Snake River? You know, in the canyon, and start start a concern of. Of, uh, of trying to set that aside as a reserve. So as you remember, I can remember it in 71, I think, at that Portland meeting yeah. up there in, in Portland at the, at the North American Wildlife Conference. And you were running around with that big binder full of beautiful 8 by 10 glossy color pictures of it. But had, yeah. When did you get started on that? What, what? 1939, I went to that canyon where those falcons, I'm still, that yeah. pair of falcons is still there. I went to that canyon from Tremont in 1939. Uh -huh. And there was that falcon right above the road that goes down to Swan Falls. It's still in the same damn place. I'll be darned, yeah. Now, they moved, but they never left that cliff. Yeah. They never once have left that cliff since uh -huh. I've watched them. Now, I went off to war, yeah. but when I came back here in 48, here they were in the yeah. same spot, and then we watched them ever since I have, and they yeah. have never left that. Even when they built a new road, I had them build the road in the winter, yeah. and, I, and they studied them, and they studied three other iries there in the same place. They're still there. And I went over a cliff and took a one for a film, and I started an avalanche that closed the road for two days because of the loose rocks. It's yeah. a big cliff and loose yeah. rocks, and I got down there and I dropped the rock about that big, and of course it all goes like this, and then the cliff was on ledge, and of course it just... Mm. And of course, the, the funniest, the funny story about that is that after I got the bird and put it in the car, my car was up on the cliff, yeah. and I came down the cliff, and here was the cars coming up and stopped. And I was going to admit, you know, what had happened, but they didn't know what had happened. <laughs> And one of them says, God damn it, we get these goddamn rock slides every week. And he was cursing the goddamn rock slides. And he was raising all kinds of this goddamn thing. And we got to fix these roads. And he was raised so much hell about it. I thought, well, I guess I just better keep quiet because I just put one more down there. But <laughs> I didn't say anything. So finally I thought, well, the best, the best thing for me to do is just leave. Yeah. So I said, well, I said, uh, you know, yeah, I said the rock slides. And, and I, I didn't, in, in those days, uh, you know, nobody, everybody shot the falcons. I didn't want them to know where they were. Sure. So I didn't say anything that I'd gone over a falcon. I, I, I finally just, he cursed the hell out of that, and then another car came and stopped, and then one came from the top and stopped, and here I'm standing there with my falcons up in the car in a little box, you know, <laughs> and uh, on top of the uh, on top of the cliff, and uh, they were all cut. Oh, that was goddamn rock slides. We've got to walk down now, and of course, they walked straight down there, a quarter mile or a half mile down. And they just were cursing the damn rock slide, and they said they happen every once a week, you know. And I thought, well, I guess I haven't done as much as I thought, so I didn't mention it. <laughs> but that was the first. Then in 1948, when we moved here, yeah. then my sons and I, and this is an interesting thing, never been said yet. We found all of those falcons, mm -hmm. and Spencer Beebe and L9 and all these guys said, oh, God, we can't hardly believe you what you're talking about for numbers now. That seems to be big falcons don't live that close together, a quarter yeah. mile and all that. Yeah. And the Englishmen the same way, you know. And um, But then what got me was the falcons, that was, that was, I just couldn't believe that there were so damn many prey falcons in there. A quarter mile, in some places there's, one on the eight, top of the 800-foot cliff and one below, and a quarter mile over, the same thing. There'd be two of them at two levels. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
and only a quarter mile apart. Well, there's 32 of them within six kilometers. You know, that's what it amounted to. That's what they found out. Well, I saw those, but and I saw, but what even got me more was the eagles. So my son Tim, who was killed, and I started the research with the Fish and Wildlife Service out of the Portland office of of uh, the Fish and Wildlife yeah. Service. And they said, we want you to go down there and see how many of those can you substantiate that you're talking about. Nobody believes it. Well, we went over all of them, Beaver and Tim and this guy. This other guy, not a, he was just here the other day. He's a big shot in Washington, D.C. now, the top man planning or something in the Fish and Wildlife Service mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. Okay. I got the publication that he put out with my, my son, Tim. Mm -hmm. But anyhow, I took all these Irish that I knew of, and they went over and looked and said, yeah, they're here. Mm -hmm. And of course, they made a mention of the prairie falcons, and then um, then uh, Morris Hornocker, Doc Hornocker, yeah. got interested, and he started uh, doing it. And uh, I never dreamt that there was the potential for a refuge. Yeah. I was thinking of some kind of a, I was trying to hope to change the law so we wouldn't shoot them all. Because they went down there to shoot the pigeons and they'd shoot the falcons and the eagles and God, I got wounded birds, you know, coming out my ears. And and, and uh, then when the BLM came and said, uh, would you help us write the technical reason why you think there are so many birds down there? I've got that written up here. I got 10 pages of very technical material uh, on the Aeolian soils, the geology, the, the breakthrough of the of the uh, Bonneville uh, when it broke through Red Rock Pass and made a 600-foot wall of water come down for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. That's when it cut all these things and it and rounded the rocks and all this and cut these holes in there, you know. And um, uh, I wrote all of that plus the climate, the precipitation being uh, uh, precipitated by the Cascade Range and the other ranges to the west, so they only got from 10 to 18 inches of rain, and the fact that at the end of the ice age, when all this happened, the wind, it all dried up, and the wind blew this beautiful silly clay loam four to five, six feet over all of the lava. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, that's the 486,000 acres we're now trying to get Congress to set aside, because if you go south of the river, east or west or north, you lose it. Mm -hmm. You get back to gravelly soils, and the Townsend Ground Squirrel can't yeah. make it. Yeah because it caves in on them, except in alluvial little spots. There's some scattered all around, but not as great numbers like we got mm -hmm. here, and rabbits and all the rest of it going. Well, so I had all these technical geologic soil, uh, hydrologic uh, stories in, in this technical mm -hmm. thing, plus all of the birds. Yeah. And then I put on there that 420 million people, I called Roy Disney and uh, uh, Perkins, you know. Uh, yeah, Marlon Perkins. Yeah, Marlon Perkins yeah. from Wild Kingdom. See, we had done the Valley of the Eagles, Eye of the Offbeat Eagle, and all this stuff down here. And this is where the world found out about that. And the senators just said, well, what the hell's wrong with just letting them do that? They're just going to let them graze. They dig for gold and plant oil, and it's a good idea. But it was only a half a mile from the edge of the cliff. That's 40,000, 46,000 acres that we got, see? Mm -hmm. Well, but what I said in there, and then what I said that really did it was, it was the last paragraph, 420 million people have seen this canyon in the films we've done. Yeah. That was the first thing that went to Congress, 420 million people have seen this canyon. And that had more 
inference and all the rest of my technical crap put together. Not for the rest of the world. Because yeah. when the rest of the world read about that, they said, God, that is truly unique. Yeah. Which it is. Sure it is. No, for large falcons. Now, we keep saying the dentists. That's not true when you consider the Illinois and all of it. It's a large, you, we've got to change our terminology. Yeah. Two things we've got to change at the World Center. The peregrine is not the fastest bird. Mm. It's the gerifalcon. Mm. I don't give a shit what anybody says. <laughs> <coughs> and the second one is, we've got to talk, quit talking about the densest population of raptors in the world because of Eleanor and Some of these, yeah, these colonial nesters. That's sure. what I mean. Yeah. We've got, we got to say the large raptors large. and we'd yeah. be all right. Yeah. Sure. But to say this way, and then somebody, somebody's going to come along and say, oh, you're full of, you know, I know, of course, right away you got an answer, but we ought to do it right in the first place. Uh -huh. I think we ought, to, we ought to at least admit that the difference between the speed of the eagle and the gerfalcon and the peregrine is probably like 10 feet per second, <laughs> if it's that, mm -hmm. in a vertical dive. Mm -hmm. Now, on the level, nobody is going to ever tell me that the gerfalcon can't take them all, because he can. I've seen them with wild uh, peregrines, and I've seen them with my trained ones, mm -hmm. and I've seen this bird here, and and uh, this business at the Paragon. The thing that the Paragon is so great at, it is the most adaptable falcon in the world and the most capable for all quarry. That's where we uh -huh. got the Paragon has got it. And its relationship to humanity, because it's 10 times as hard to fly a gerfalcon and really hunt with it. Mm -hmm. A passage gerfalcon. That is a passage gerf peregrine. A passage peregrine is one of the neatest things that ever came, mm -hmm. and so is a passage prey falcon. But again, the passage peregrine is head and shoulders above in its understanding with you sure. as a yeah. man. Yeah. So I, I, I love that. But uh, I think there's a thing that we, we, we've got to change. Well, when did, when did they, they then begin to set the whole thing aside? And well, because essentially you were responsible for that. That move. Yeah, well, what, what they did, they didn't believe what I was yeah, talking about. Uh -huh. And then they came to me and said, would you help us consider mm -hmm. a snake or a birds of prey naturally? And I said, what is it? Well, the cattlemen don't want it. So I took my eagles and I went to the cattlemen and I went to every meeting with an eagle and a falcon yeah. with me. Yeah. And 99% of the time they said, well, I said, the eagle catches jackrabbits, that saves your grazing. They catch mm -hmm. two or three jackrabbits and 25 to 50 a year. That's equal to seven sheep that you can, or mm -hmm. two cows that you can graze that you wouldn't have otherwise by the food you save that the eagle takes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go on through all that. Plus, I had an eagle like this character sitting on there with me and on my fist. And, uh, and, uh, and then I took him, and then I knew every eagle eyrie in the state that mm. was traveling it. I'd been to them all. Yeah. I knew ranchers that were objecting. I said, did you know that eagle lives out there in the, your northwest quarter, your northwest pasture? Mm -hmm. What do you mean, an eagle living there? Yeah, that eagle's been there for 30 years that I know of. Mm -hmm. You ever see him catch a sheep? No. I never seen the eagle hardly, yeah. but once in a great while. But then the other thing that uh, got him when I was lecturing on this, which is so damned interesting, I had the cattleman down here. You know the story about spitting and saying you brought that eagle. That's one thing. But here's, here's the thing that gave, gave me authenticity. Because I had been going down there since 48 and studying these young birds and learning what they were doing, not realizing, not putting it down like a scientist. I wasn't thinking as a scientist. I was a soil scientist, and I've done all the methodology and all of the data like you have on your bird, which I don't have. You do. You did it to start with. But... What I saw was, I was talking to all these cattlemen, he said, God damn it, out here I was 
bringing my cow down, and that goddamned eagle came out of the sky, and he ran that calf all the way to the bottom of the draw. It took me half a day to get that goddamn calf back up. I said, did he have white in his tail? Yeah, he had a big white band in his tail. I said, well, I'll tell you what he was doing. Did he ever touch your calf? No, I never touched the goddamn calf. He came down like that. Now, this is, this is a 500 cattlemen I'm talking to and sheepmen. And I said, well, you know what the eagle was doing? He was learning to make his attack on the rabbits. He was never going to touch that. Mm -hmm. And those old guys said, by God, that old boy's right, you know. I never saw him touch that cow. And a lot of them in there had the same experience. They said, well, I'll be goddamn, that explains it. I've seen that a lot of times, but i never seen one grab one, either a sheep or a cow. Now, finally, I got Joe Helley. He saw one grab a sheep. Yeah. But there were 800 people in that meeting. And the president of the Texas Sheep and Wool Growers Association said, I've been raising these, these goats and things. I've never seen an eagle catch a goat. Actually, I've seen them eat the dead ones. They said, I've never seen one dive out of the sky and kill one. So well, they don't have to. 10% die. You see? Well, but so when we started this, I went to the, 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 the meetings. They held meetings in the, all of, you know, down at, down in Hawaii County and every county they had a meeting. And I took an eagle and went to every meeting. And as a soil scientist, I said, you've got to recognize the productivity of the soil and the fact that we're talking about doing this together. And you're recognizing the use of the eagle in what we're all doing and in the permanence of this, because you can't irrigate it. Well, they thought they could, they tried it, but that didn't work and I knew that wasn't gonna work. But now they, that no longer is an argument. Desert entries are gone because you can't drill a well and make it work. All of those that did, 20,000 have blown it. They couldn't do it. Hmm. Uh, but the point, the, the point that, still the same point that I learned when I was with old Steen Nelson and my dad, was that having the eagle there on the stage, where they, were gonna, they couldn't help but say, I don't believe you're doing that bad, let's go with them. And that's what the president of the Cattlemen's Association, after a two-hour lecture down here, and everybody was giving me hell. Oh, you're taking away the tax evaluation. I said, it's not tax evaluation, this is federal land. Mm -hmm. The government's making money from this. And taking money from you for making money on your cattle. Oh, I closed one of the politicians off badly that way. But what, what, what I saw, again, was just like I saw with my old granddad. There's a guy who had thought those chicken hawks, and he had a reason to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they looked at that bird and said, let's go with him. And finally, the president of the, of the Idaho Cattlemen's Association, Dick Baird down here, lives in Hawaii County up in the Reynolds Creek right to this day, got up after this, all this big, long discussion. I was sitting up there, and I thought, well, I'm going to fight him to the death, you know. Mm -hmm. He got up, and he says, he says, I'll have, he says, I'll have to say something. He says, Morley Nelson is certainly no 60-second ecologist. I think we ought to go with him. And everybody said, we go. There you go. Yeah. Every one of them in the room said, mm -hmm. okay, we go. They'd listened to that argument. They'd listened to all these things I was talking about. I knew enough. I didn't realize it at the time. But somebody told me this. Uh, Doc Murphy from BSU came up here and he listened to me give a lecture someplace. And he says, I have never heard anybody talk about eagles like you're talking about. I want you to write a book for BSU. And I said, well, Christ, I can't write a book. You know, I, I haven't, I haven't, I, I still want to go do it. I don't figure I know. Now I'm old enough. I'm realizing that some of these data that I have and some of these things that I have, God, are unique to my own experiences uh -huh. involving 
the prey base, the birds themselves, and now comes imprinting. I'm beginning to understand as an eagle, which I always felt I did, but now with an eagle breeding on my back, I begin to really understand and 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 put down. Now, what would have been great had I been a Frank Craighead or a John Craighead type and had written all of this down every day. Mm-hmm. But still, at the same time, it might have taken me more time than I'd had. I spent so much time when I yeah. had it, doing it. And when I got home, I had to fly. I never had the time to. I, I had 14 eagles. They, haven't, they didn't do that. Mm-hmm. See, I had falcons flying and eagles flying, and I had to do it. I never had the time to put it down. So what I've, what I've ended up with is just like we're talking about here is the high points with Blackie and the high points yeah. with Tundra and the high points with all those prairie falcons that we had that did such wonderful things and, 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 and proved with under reasonable doubt what a fabulous bird a prairie falcon is. And yet we still need to do a, a film on that. But, you know, in the, some of the Disney films, there's a prairie falcon playing for a whatever falcon is going and did the hot stuff. <laughs> and I had jerk falcons and peregrines there, but they just weren't quite is eager. Now, one of the things that, that there's another thing I noticed that is very different with gerfalcons and peregrines. You can swing your lure with a uh, with a, uh, a, a peregrine, and she will check the wind and the wind and not start in. You can never swing your lure with a prairie falcon or a gerfalcon, and she won't roll over and attack it immediately. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. peregrine is a thinking son of a gun mm-hmm. on the direction of the wind and a lot of other things that mm-hmm. these other guys don't give a damn about. They say, <laughs> knock that son of a buck down and get him on the ground any way you can get him. Yep. A peregrine is saying, I got to knock him clean. And he'll think and go and maybe make an extra turn before he comes down. You'd never find that with prairie falcons or peri- or gerfalcons. <laughs> they just won't do it, brother. When the action starts, they're upside down and down every time right now. And these, these are the, some of the things that I, I saw about the eagles. The other thing that I saw about the eagles that I couldn't believe was my trained eagle catching a pigeon. I thought, well, now no big fat eagle can catch a pigeon. Mm-hmm. I had seen him once or twice in my life catch a duck. Mm-hmm. I'd seen him knock down a goose. I'd seen him knock down a sandhill crane. In each case, killing it. Mm-hmm. But that... But but it was it was a team in the two of those, and one with the chucker partridge was a team. The female was chasing the partridge from ridge to ridge, and the male came in a scoop and just took it right out of the air like a falcon went across the river. But my falcon, my uh, eagle, Otis, uh, that we took here, I had my pigeons flying. He's homing pigeon, and and Otis was up there a thousand feet above him, flying him right here. Mm-hmm. And all at once, one day, he decides that pigeons got up off over here where they were quite a bit halfway up. Man, he rolled over and came down through those like a falcon. And the only reason he didn't catch one is he tried to get one with each foot. He took feathers out of one, yeah. and he tried for the other one with his other foot. Yeah. And if he put both feet over here, there is no doubt. And he did it with such a fantastic, and I saw it again the other day, two weeks ago, we were sitting in the middle of the river. The same thing reminded me of old Otis, the first time I ever saw it. And I realized that an eagle was something beyond catching rabbits. Mm-hmm. That they could catch any damn thing they wanted to, including other falcons. We found the falcons. That's one of the things that Tim Nelson found, prairie falcons in the eyrie, in, in the, the eagle's eyrie. 
young prairie falcons. Oh, yeah. See, uh -huh. first time anybody ever said that. Also, when we were doing that film, it was the first time I ever found any eagles with a frowns. Mm -hmm. It was when I took seven eagles to do that film. Five of them had the frowns. Well, where did they get frowns? You know, that's, that's obvious where that's not. Yeah, you have to be too smart. Hey, that's in jackrabbits. And then I, I watched them do it. I watched them dive down like I saw Otis do, and they run them into the cliff, hang on to the wall of the cliff with one hand, and reach in with a foot and take it out of there. This is in the, in the canyon. In the canyon. Uh -huh. That's how they catch them. If they don't catch them outright, like they can usually outturn them. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing that happened to me was, when Otis made that big thousand foot stoop and came through my own pigeons and feathered one and touched another one, yeah. I said, wait a minute, do uh -huh. you think you could do that? You know, and then we, we experimented with them a little bit, you know, we let pheasants go. Yeah. Every time, bam, that big stoop and pow, both feet. And there's no doubt about <laughs> what they could do, uh -huh. you know. We did that in a film for Marlon Perkins, they didn't use it because it was, it was a hen pheasant. Mm -hmm. But uh, man, the action was, boy, there's no doubt about where that pheasant was going. If yeah. he stayed in the air, he, <laughs> that old boy just came in there with both feet and palm, uh -huh. and that was the end of it. See, and then he landed. And uh, uh, this is the reason when Disney said, will you train an eagle? This is when I really got serious on the eagle thing. I said, well, I want to do that anyhow. And uh, this is a good chance to do it. Which movie was that that he was making? Uh, the first one was uh, that we tried it on was uh, uh, Perry the Pine Squirrel. Yeah. We didn't get done. I ran off the water. We didn't get it done. So, uh, well, that's all right. It's, the, uh, the name isn't, you know. But you got interested. I got him. Um, I got interested from uh, from from Disney. Well, I got interested before that. I started flying them, and again, uh, other people saw them, and then the Disney people asked me, would I do uh, uh, this? And before I ever did a major film with Disney, I did one with uh, Paramount called The Day of the Eagle, which the eagle was trained to hunt parachutes. Hmm. Oh, and by the way, my sons took an Emmy, International Emmy, yeah. for sports photography, for the film we did when we trained an eagle to catch the guy that was hang gliding. Oh, yeah? And land, uh, grab it on top, and then flew up there with another one and got it. And of course, I trained that eagle right here in the backyard, see, oh, with a, uh, a perch. I put a perch on there, yeah. and when the eagle got a hold of the... Uh, the hang glider with the guy in it, of course, he, he held his wings out and God, he was pulling back on it and it was affecting the guy. He said, what the hell's wrong? I can't go up or down. He was yeah. in trouble, see. <laughs> <coughs> and then Beaver went up in a dual one and filmed it. Oh, that's good. It was never shown here. It was shown in Europe. Yeah. That's where they got the Emmy. He just got this the other day. But anyhow, uh, uh, the, the, once I started to work with the Eagles, and we did uh, the day of the eagle. We trained an eagle to catch a parachute in the air. See? Yeah. And uh, the girl, Joan Saxon, is still a movie actor. He was uh, the man in it, the the hero, and George Montgomery. And uh, the girl is 
still uh, here. She's been here several times with me. Uh, <clears throat> I can't say her name. Anyhow, at the moment, but what happened, we trained Eagle to catch the parachute, and what they were doing was taking dope from Mexico and drop it in at parachutes before this ever really got going. They had a film about it, see? And this Eagle was going to stop this, was going to catch the, the parachute, and this was the story. See? Mm -hmm. okay. And we actually did that. So your, your Eagle experiences were in starting in the 60s or something like that then? Oh, yeah. before that. I start, Otis is uh, 28 years, 30 years. We did, uh, Christ, we did Ida the Offbeat Eagle 28 years ago. Okay. 29 years ago. Oh, 61. All right, and we had Otis, another eight, ten years before that, okay. at least. Okay. So it, you're going way back. We're talking about okay. in the 50s in when the I 50s. first started okay. this. See, we started with the Living Desert, which mm -hmm. was the first one, then the Vanishing Prairie, then uh, Perry the Pine Squirrel. That's the one they had the Gossock in? Uh, yeah. Ate all the squirrels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had that. I had a goshawk that was terrific. Tell me again how you got started with Disney with this. Well, I'd already done the Vanishing Prairie and worked with the, the, the Living Desert. Yeah. And then they just said, well, okay, you can do this. Can you do this with eagles? And I said, well, I, I, I'm just starting, but I, I know I can do it. Uh-huh. And it was they that said, well, We'd like to go do this. When I saw what happened, when the red tail killed the rattlesnake in the living desert, and everybody said, you've got to quit shooting those chicken hawks because they kill rattlesnakes, and it went to 20, 37 nations, mm -hmm. I said, made a minute now. Here's where I've got to get a camera. I'm, I'm going this way because in science, I was a scientist all my life, mm -hmm. and I would... I mean, I'm nuclear. I was in the nuclear in the hydro, the highest echelon of, of, of hydrology and soil science. And I, I've got to publish all these things I've published in there. You know what happens? It's been 30 years since I published the soil moisture factor relationship to the Columbia River before they believe it. And it just about happened this year. Mm -hmm. And so if you go, and this is the things where, where, the, where this has changed so much, if you go as a scientist and you talk to other scientists in the hydrology soils or raptors, most of them know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But that's as far as it goes, except dribbling out. Yeah. But when you go with, like Disney was doing, and, and now a billion people have seen some of those films, more than a billion people known, paid for it. Yeah. And you see the effect of Everybody's saying, you got to quit shooting those chicken hawks because they kill rattlesnakes. Mm -hmm. You have to swallow a couple of times and say, no, I, that was when I, I said, I'm getting, and I got a camera from Disney. I said, boy, I'm, and I started shooting this stuff that they couldn't shoot. Mm -hmm. I sold them footage, and, and the footage that I shot is what get them to do the Eye of the Offbeat Eagle. I took that footage down with old Walt Disney and Walter, uh, all those uh, guys down there, and they... Uh, and, uh, and from Walt down, mm -hmm. and I ran some footage that I had, uh, that I've shot of an eagle flying right up above my house here, coming down, and they said, wait a minute, we'll, we'll do 
I do the offbeat eagle if you will help us write the story, mm -hmm. which is what I did. Now, I'm still doing that. I'm doing it. This week, there was a guy here for Homa Cards, the finest, most expensive nature films have ever been done, been done my, for the most money, two hours long. Mm -hmm. That man was here. I showed him Thor, and I showed him the footage, and it was just like Walt Disney. When he saw the eagles and the falcons ruling and all the stuff that we got, he said, mm -hmm. he just swallowed, he called up from New York and said, man, I have never been so impressed in my life. And, of course, he saw me doing this stuff with Thor and all that, yeah, too. Yeah. But the point was, when I went to Disney, I had a, my footage in there, and I've got an interesting thing in here. I sold footage of Thor, of um, Tundra, yeah. making the most beautiful stoop, one of the most beautiful stoops I've ever seen to this day. Mm -hmm. And uh, Disney people saw it, and it was... Uh, one of the films they wanted to do, I think it was, uh, I believe it was uh, The Pigeon That Worked a Miracle. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, they said, we want to buy this footage from you, this 12 feet. Yeah. And they sent me a contract. The first three pages was, if I ever sold it to them, I could never show it, I could never use it, I could never do anything with it again. Mm -hmm. I kept that contract in here because I would use it. It just shows you how this goes and how I felt about it. I talked to Walt Disney himself about that. He said, that it's magnificent footage. Mm -hmm. I've got it someplace in the file here. See that old gal is, well, it was a kind of a fluffy cloud so you could see the speed. And I mean, she just, just poured it just absolutely loose. And no slow motion, we didn't have it. He was, but she came from so high, that little speck came down and closed up and then they just bombed that thing. See? Well. Okay, he said, uh, I'll give you worldwide release, but you can't sell it, and we want the original. I said, no, I shot that for the Art of Falconry. I'm not selling you the original. He called me up himself. Uh, Winston Hibbler, the guy that was doing all this, mm -hmm. big shot, the top man. Morley, why can't you go out and do that again? I said, I, I might, but I haven't the time. Mm -hmm. I'm working, and I don't have it. I'll give you worldwide release. You do anything you want with it, mm -hmm. but don't tell me what I can do with it. I went on and on and on. It was so good that finally they said, okay, and I've got that contract in here in my file. I just saw it. I said, you scratch out the first three pages would tell me what I can do with my film, and I'll give you the worldwide release, and that's the end of it. <laughs> and I'm the only one that ever did that to Walt Disney. I still have that. <laughs> you still got it. You bet. I wish you'd drag it out sometime. Well, Something i got to go look for it because it's so far back. It's sure. in, uh, I think it's in the film Modern Falconry. Mm -hmm. The stoop is in there. I see. Okay. That, that's another thing. i got to get the original of that. You know what? Those films I shot that far ago will go on television today better than if you shot them today. The resolution was higher. Mm -hmm. You had to have bright sunlight or you couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. And they can correct little changes in light and color even electronically. Yeah. When we did Rulers of the Wind last year, mm -hmm. some of that footage was 30 years old and it looked like it was shot yesterday and all on the same day, the whole damn thing we shot. Yeah. I mean, that film, original, mm -hmm. 
And that stuff I shot of Tom Cade and me up there, I gotta run all that down too. Paul, Where was uh, that? That was. Uh, and when I went up to uh, the Arctic with him. With Tom. Yeah. Uh huh. And the bear came and chased us, and then the falcon came and landed next to the bear when it was leaving, and all that. Hmm. Jesus Christ, that bear scared the shit out of both of us. But you know, I've been there. I've been there with the bull. I saved the day. I know what I did because I used to work with the bulls, and I knew that if anybody stood up fast, mm -hmm. the bull, the bear was going to charge us. Mm -hmm. Tom and I were in this blind and was shooting the, the. Oh, that's that is gorgeous to this day. That. That is the most gorgeous footage of that, I've never seen better, of the Jerry Falcon feeding her young. Mm -hmm. That I shot that day the bear came after us. And then the bear came down the draw, Tom and I were in this little deal, and here's this cliff and no trees, and the Olamnagabek River and the, right next to us, you know. And, and here comes this bear, and I saw him up there, and I wasn't man enough to film him. And before I got around, he'd come down within about 70 yards, I would see. And then I realized he was going to come right on down the damn trail because we were not moving or doing anything there. So I, I, I saw him. I said, Tom, Christ, there's a grizzly bear coming up here. <laughs> and I said, now, we got to stand up slow mm -hmm. because I knew about bulls. And I knew they f operate the same way. Stand up slow. If he charges, we split and run and dive in the river. Okay. <laughs> when we stood up, when we stood up real slow, you know, and we knocked a couple of willows off, that old boom, boom, put his feet up, and he was in some willows in the bottom of this draw. The top of them was seven and a half feet. His front feet were over the top of the willows. We went up and measured them. <laughs> and he growled at us and told us to get out of there, and I mean, we got the message. I mean, it was, yeah, really put it on. And we were just about to crap in our pants and run and jump in the river, and the old bear goes down and turns around and goes up. And then I got my nerve back up. I'd have had 10,000 or more if I'd have got that one because it was really for real. That footage would have been worth it to this day. But then I got the old bear going back up, and here's a great big boulder, and the peregrine or the jerk falcon coming and lands next to the bear, and I got him both. <laughs> but I didn't get him when he told us to go. Anyhow, the, 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 the golden eagle I have up here right now gives me the same thrill. It is beautiful. It's one of the magnificent singular philosophies of the raptors, and they all have it, but especially the golden eagle, probably beyond all the others. And that is, I can put a piece of food down there, and I fly this bird, mm -hmm. that big one you saw yeah. up there. And I say, can I have that back? And I go over like this, and she understands the difference. She'll leave the meat, mm -hmm. turn, and say, it's either you or me, buddy. And she says, either you die or I die. Nobody's going to take that. It is fan. It is. This is the, the inspirational quality of the birds of prey at the most magnificent. And it's right on the ground. And that bird would do that with a mountain lion or a dog or anybody. He would say, brother, either leave or we're going to the end. No halfway. And that's what that lion, I, I mean that grizzly bear said. I said, God, I... That old boy is saying, either get out of here or it's either going to be you or me. No halfway. But then he decided it wasn't worth the time and went back. But that eagle does the same thing. And yet, you know, I can go in there and say, okay, I'm doing it. Pick her up. Fly her. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't try to feed her. She doesn't mm -hmm. run me off. You put it down and then say, I want it back. She'll leave it. I've done it on film three times this last week to show people 
what she does. Mm -hmm. He comes right at you with both feet. Yeah. Okay. Well, what a magnificent, beautiful thing that is to feel. What's with the atomic bomb and the 375 Magnum and all that? And those characters saying, come on, buddy, man to man, I'll take you any place, any time, anywhere, and all the way over the Great Divide, not just a little ways. <laughs> that's beautiful. To me, that is one of the inspirational things that's so tremendous about all of those characters. And the same thing with, the, with people when they shoot a hawk. They go to kill and step on it, the hawk comes after them and grabs them. That is one of the singular philosophies of what we do in falconry that is so beautiful that you can get around like you can with the dog. If the dog wanted to take you, he could take you too. And the bull the same way. In the old in the old days on the ranch, I used to, I used to have a friend, a big bull, you know. Everybody said, well, he's going to kill you. Well, I knew the bull well enough. No, the other bulls would. I knew that. I'm talking about my friend. Yeah. And, and I could go and scratch him behind the ear with his great horns and that God, he could just kill you like that, you know. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't. He understood and I understood. And these are the things that uh, we're beginning to, to understand about our position. But those characters, and, and the other thing that gets me and got me the first I ever saw, the fastest single action in nature is the attack of a falcon on its quarry. And at the time I saw that, it was faster than the airplanes were going. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and I recognized it. I was so flabbergasted, just like today on film, when anybody sees that, they say, Jesus. And when they see it for real, even more so. Yep. And this is what shows through on the films. And that's why the film at six feet of the red tail killing the rattlesnake, you get it. Mm -hmm. You say, that old boy is... Mm. playing with his life. He ain't mm. just goofing with that snake. By God, it's either going to be him or that mm. snake. And that is where humanity has got and always has had a, a, a chance to feel what they feel. And I'm sure that all the nations that have an eagle for their, uh, except an American, they didn't get it, but all the other ones that knew about it sure as hell did that singular philosophy that they represent. I have to smile. And yet, here I am. I want to do the film on the bald eagle, which is completely unrelated to 60 films that have been done. Every single one. So as I'm catching the dead fish. Mm -hmm. yes. And 92% of their food in the Aleutian Islands are birds. Mm -hmm. And they hit you in the head. And they, I got hit. So I sent Clayton White up there, you know, and he got hit in the head up there too. <laughs> I want to go back and show. I want to take one of my golden eagles. Mm -hmm to a bald eagle's eyrie and fly it and let this world see what happens. Mm -hmm. You're going to see something that you won't believe, brother. Mm -hmm. Now, that, as long as that, that golden eagle, I've seen it with mm -hmm. uh, peregrines in the Aleutian Islands. Yeah. They catch baby peregrines, they know that there, mm -hmm. just like, they, like our bald, golden eagles do here. But I've seen in the, in the Kiska and that too and Amshitka and all those places I was in the war where I spent a lot of time because the shooting was over. I had time. I've seen a, a Peel's Falcon go in there and get too close to a bald eagle's area and be lucky to escape with his life just like I've seen golden eagles come close to catching an adult prairie falcon hmm. when they got too close to the golden eagle area. And if one big vertical stoop with all this going, I mean, boy, it is 
Now, once they miss, it's okay. But but they, they when they get that much speed, they pull up, and the hawk has got to get out of there. Mm-hmm. Now, when they and when they get out of there, the eagle says he goes back and lands on the cliff. He don't fight with them. But what I want to show is what happens when somebody invades the bald eagle's nest. If you don't think the bald eagle is a good national emblem, everybody's going to say, wait a mm-hmm. minute now. I never thought the bald eagle would do that. Yeah. Both hitting people and hitting those other characters that should be in a film. Mm-hmm. Now, Disney won't do that kind of thing. They don't want to involve in that. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going to get the goal to do that, but that <laughs> is something that should be done. I think we should someday get far enough along where we can understand this. We seem to have done it because of all the work like you, you have done where the government would say, okay, if you want to fly some eagles, that's a noble sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, under certain conditions, you ought to be allowed. Now, I asked that of my good friend Cecil Andrews, Secretary of Interior, and yeah. the Fish and Wildlife Service just shoved him clean out of his desk. <laughs> and no, yeah. we don't want to start anything like that because yeah. they're running endangered and all that. Mm-hmm. But actually, they're not, never have been, in the, in the scope that the Paragon was. Now, let, let, you better ask me a question. No, I, was I, just, get... I was just wondering, you know, in the, um, you've been out here in the West and, uh, you know, you grew up in it by yourself, so maybe this question isn't, isn't really even appropriate, but I was thinking that in the course of your, your life in falconry, I wondered if there have been any, any other persons, any particularly, well, particularly falconers, but maybe not, that, that had the greatest influence in, uh, in your conduct and philosophy about the sport. Now, I know you've been, you know, more a loner, out here than a lot of these guys. I never had anybody that I could yeah. fly with. Yeah. Uh, I, I uh, admired the Craig Heads. Sure. Uh-huh. But I recognized I was off in another yeah. realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I admired uh, Al Nye, but I never saw him fly a falcon until 30 years after I knew him or 40. <laughs> uh, I have been trapping prey falcons in 1946 and trapped three in the morning and let Two of them go Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they didn't attack right. And I said, that's not a good bird. I knew a good bird before I trapped it. And I have gone out there when those birds would be migrating down through the Snake River Valley, which they do to this day, right there at Murray, south of Salt Lake. And there will be, you could go out and trap three or four prey falcons in the morning. I've gone out there and trapped four falcons in the morning and let three of them go. And I've gone out there several times and trapped two or three and never took any of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you didn't like the way they uh, performed? Well, I knew what was good and what was mm-hmm. bad. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd watched them so closely. The ones that hold their wings down, the ones that hold their wings absolutely flat, and the build and the, and the wing beat and the attack downwind, everything, see. And some of them, they'll always go into the wind. Well, a real, a prey falcon, it really is means business will come downwind every time, see, a good one. And when you get them trained to the lure, she'll come at downwind and brother, you better be fancy because it's hard to <laughs> get her to miss. Yeah. But you see, I was lucky. Now guys, a guy traps a falcon, he, he's got no chance of saying, well, I'm gonna let that one go because he didn't do it right. That'd mm-hmm. be unheard of. Mm-hmm. But when I was doing this and the only one in Idaho or Utah doing it, or Idaho for that matter, I, 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 I let a lot of them go. So I probably got a distorted idea of how good the prey falcons were when I was taking... You're taking the cream of the crop. <laughs> yes, I was. I didn't realize that, but I was doing it, but I just thought, I just knew that much uh-huh. about it, see. 
So, and so when I wrote about prey falcons, I now look back at it and say, well, Nelson, you had some, haven't seen one as good as some of those yet. Could mm -hmm. I pick that way? Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's, it's just, and then you read the old falconers and they say the same thing. Mm -hmm. One out of 10 peregrines will be significantly better than the others. Mm -hmm. well, the same way with those guys. But very few ever had a chance to check it that way. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving for my family the history of the philosophical way that I have had to go and what mm -hmm. I've been forced to do mm -hmm. by war or something else. Mm -hmm. And now, I don't doubt about what they'll make movies on it because, mm -hmm. God, it's been an active, wild, uh, <laughs> beyond belief, some yeah. of the things that I've done. And now I look back at it. At the time, it was the only thing to do, just like everybody else. And I said, what, what about this? Well, at the time, it seemed like that's what you say about war. Sure. Well, and that's the way it was with me. I didn't recognize that I had a series of wounds. and I could still go over the cliff, which I did. Mm -hmm. Because even though I had two bullet holes in here, they were below the bone, these little ones under here. That's on your right, right, right uh, arm, but right I had a big hole back right here, yeah. and seven cuts in there, and yeah. 32 inches of incision, and no nerve here, bullet back here, and, and uh, so I had a cast on the leg. Still, it didn't do anything to this part. Yeah, I could your go my rope, see? Still climb, sure. And so it wasn't any problem. Everybody thinks mm -hmm. that's so wild. Well. It was, since I went in my pajamas, and that's a lot of funny things, but, uh, but the, the thing that I've, I've, I've learned now is that what I'd like to get down is some, the, some of the, re, the concepts of religion have to be changed. You can't go to a war and come out of the war and say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. That gets to be absolutely asinine <laughs> to do that every day, you know. Yeah. And, and a lot of other philosophical things, and you take a man up on the front lines and he watches men on each side of him killed and blown to bits every day and take him back to Rome with the girls, it ain't sex he's after, he's worrying about his own existence carrying on besides <laughs> a little sex. This is what, no, how, how is one man gonna, going to judge another man morally who thinks he's got two weeks to live or two days or two hours and go back with the beautiful girls that are starving to death where you feel that you can share a part of what's left of you. Come on now, any sexual mores I'm talking about, it's something else. It's a very different proposition. And I don't mean that that isn't a problem normally, because it is, but when you add this to it, it's way off in another realm, and one man can't judge another. And you're all back here in the same university, that may be one thing. But over there, it's something else when you see this. And you know you've only got so many days and you're going down, mm -hmm. all of us. Well, now these are the kind of things that I'm, besides the philosophical things, all this uh, falcopomorphism and all this animal pomorphism that I believe in my granddad started me on that I, I uh, have gone so deeply into as to our, as to the, to the, uh, our purpose and our existence on this planet with consideration for all life is involved in that mm -hmm. depth if mm -hmm. we're going to do it right, including the relationships between people that we should have sure. yeah. that are similar. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I, in this uh, this thing, it's a some of it is going to be fantastic the way I dictated it. Others are going to have to be rewritten and fussed with, you know. Well, and that I don't care. Mm -hmm. I'm leaving it for it's there. That's the the, the, the important part is that you've got it. And it's there. Yeah. Well, I got a ways to go yet, but I'm going to do that. 
then I do want to write a short thing concise about some of these things we've been talking about right here uh, on uh, for the book on the falconer journal or the falconers on uh, what falconry has done for conservation and the birds of prey and sure. and the whole story yeah. I've got a real some real good thoughts to mm -hmm. put in there, some of which we've discussed today. And, and these guys have written me things and said, here's something that you like, we'd like to hear from you on it. Some of the very things you said, how come you got mm -hmm. started? Mm -hmm. That sort of sure. thing. But anyhow, um, I'll do that for that book that uh, Jim Weaver and all those guys and you are working on too. Okay. That'd be good. Not how great falconry is, mm -hmm. but the other end of it that's, sure. that that's coming out. Yeah. Uh, a little bit on that, but that that's a minimum. As I under, understand what they're trying to do. Is they're not trying to tell everybody how great it is to go out and fly your hawk. It is a great to understand the depth and the and all of the details and the philosophy that's behind it. That, yeah. that and and the changes that we've made in society because of it. Mm -hmm. That's where I've had a, a piece of it. Yeah. And this is what I want to write about for that. And then I want to get that done then I might uh, uh, take time but what I love I still love going flying my hawks and doing these things and going with my birds and I love doing the films because they tell such a hell of a story well if they're getting it across to the public that's right and they come to an appreciation that no amount of, of academic lecturing ever or biological do. facts is ever going to do know. that's exactly you understand exactly what I'm talking about and you've lived it too and you've seen it and been a part of it, and uh, this is the thing that I, uh, this is the thing that I see. In the what has falconry meant to you, and how has it affected your life? You think, and how does, uh, what's your outlook on the sport? You ask what it has meant to me in my life. Now that I'm 74 years old, almost, uh, I can cool, calm, and collected look back at my life, the intensity that I have followed the art of falconry through my life uh, is amazing and obviously resulted from the close knowledge of first the dogs and then the horses and then the cattle and the bulls and the things that I made friends of on the ranch. Obviously, there was, within my psyche, an inherited characteristic of recognizing and enjoying and following with a great intensity this relationship between all of the other things that live. Um, oh, wait a minute. I, let's see, did Pat go up and... Pat! Yeah. Oh, you're here. Yeah, Hello. Well, no, I left the hook off up above, so okay. she's going to come up and call. Okay. Well, I thought, uh, we just, I just wanted you to call because your friend would like to, to talk to you, and I told her that, so the hook, the phone's off the hook upstairs, probably. You know, your friend from... Yeah, well, I'll call her back. Why'd you leave the phone off the hook? Oh, I don't, I don't know. Is that, did that thing, I'm in there. No, there was nothing on this one. Well, it's no it, sound it, at all. Ring. Well, then you left it off. I left it off, right? so I won't call, but are you going to go up and call? In about five minutes, yeah. Well, I'll go hang it up then. Yeah. Sorry, slight interruption there. Well, well, the thing that I was going into...
was this intensity of of following the techniques used in falconry and the techniques used with horses and dogs is essentially the same. And uh, um, the reward that comes back to me and to my family, which have all gone the same way now, my daughter and, and every one of my family, all of the three boys and two still living, I have to just smile at their intensity in the fact that they have lived with me and were a part of and the reason that I could accomplish what I did was because when I was working as a scientist I didn't have the time to stay home and fly the birds and work with the eagles and that took a great deal of knowledge and background and they all as I was growing up, I took care of the many wounded birds and the birds that I was using for, for falconry. And besides that, and so did Suzanne. And they all flew the eagles and the falcons, and we're very, very good at it. Who's Suzanne? Let me... My daughter. Your daughter, okay. My daughter, Suzanne. And she flew the falcons too. Now, now they're both down there, and so Suzanne is the manager of the Echo Films, the office manager and Beaver and Tyler are partners in Echo Films mm -hmm. who are using footage that we shot together over a 40-year period and some that I shot before then that's still useful to the art of falconry insofar as some of the historical or some of the birds such as Blackie that was such a tremendous influence on all of us and particularly me. So. When you say what it has meant to me, uh, when you go to war and you deal with men's lives, that is the grimmest, most horrendous thing that a human being can go through. And I went through that with the same feeling and, and the same depth with many of the men that I got to know so well and half of them, three quarters of them are dead from the war alone. But one of them wrote of me something I will always remember, and it exemplifies this. The sergeant that lives right here in town was with me all the way uh, from Kiska fighting the Japanese all the way until I was shot in Italy. Two years ago, he wrote a statement in there that the amazing thing about Captain Nelson, we called the Falcon because of, I had Falcons when I was in the war and when we were training, uh, is that in the middle of the battles, and when we were in reserve, he was talking about saving the birds and the soils of the earth for the future. In other words, I was, at the time the war was on, thinking beyond the war and even to the birds. And one of them that followed me out wrote a, a, a very um, deep letter after this sergeant wrote this about me, he said, well, here's a captain that was in the war, but he talked about the world and the soil and getting on and trying to get over this thing mm -hmm. at the time the war was on, when everybody else was, this was the thing that him. But the falcons were the things that uh, carried that through because there were no longer horses or, or dogs that I could deal with, but wherever I went in the world, including the war.
Yeah. There were peregrines sitting all over the place. So this is a this is a thing that uh, that adds up to the, my own family. Now then, when we got into the big uh, and and my my sons and daughter, uh, it it, put, it brought tears to my eyes just this year because when I was fighting with the the uh, uh, National Guard who wanted to blow up. 90 square miles of the prey base of the Snake River Birds of Prey Natural Area. Of course, having spent 40 years down there in detail on that very subject, I was really against it. And I was a consultant uh, with an outfit that was trying to write the environmental impact statement, and they couldn't stand what I was saying, wouldn't even uh, put down what I said, so I put it down. And then I turned around, and at the public hearings, I was going to go to Mexico. I had worked so hard on it. We'd set up our times. I had to go to Mexico. So I went to my sons and daughter one day down at the office. And I said, well, you know, I know this is going to hurt your business to talk about making the National Guard uh, a tank firing range be considerate of the productivity of the soil and the falcons and the eagles. And, and my boy just laughed. And they always got a sense of humor with this. And he said, well, Dad, you just tell us when to draw. And I thought, well, <laughs> then I realized the depth of what they were talking about. They were saying, we'll get up there and say, and I had all this written down. Yeah. We'll get up there, and my, and, and my youngest son, Tyler, was an international debate man. He is a marvelous speaker, and he could present this case. And uh, we had a big discussion about... Uh, well, well, all three of them. I would like some coffee or anything or some up there. Would you? Okay. Bar. Uh, and and uh, he, uh, 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 we had we had this discussion about who was going to say this. Both Suzanne and Tyler and Beaver said, "Dad, we'll get up and do this. We'll take it all." Oh man, tears came in my eyes. I thought, "Wow, now you're seeing something." that you've felt all of your life with your own family coming back and defending the birds and the eagles and the falcons and the soil and all the rest of it. And so then the intensity of my own interest uh, has come back uh, through them. And now they, they went out and filmed the, the artillery range firing and the tank tracks without my consent thinking we'll help dad, we know he's going to come and, and have to do this. And when I hit the generals with the fact that I had photographed the tracks that had been made for 40 years on that range, they knew that I meant business. And there was no way they could back off and not face up to what we were saying and what they were saying and what they said when I was gone. I had people come up afterward and say, boy, Morley, you can be proud of your son the day he got up and spoke at the, uh, at the private hearings in your name. And he talked with first-hand knowledge of the same thing. So when you ask me such a deep question as what has it meant to me, then the other thing is all the way through the war, even after I was shot, I went over that cliff and broke my cast and all that story and, and took a falcon. I still had this intense relationship it's hard to believe the, 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 the point that I'm making is, and you look back at your life, 
and you're in the same boat. You understand beyond others because you have a bird right now that's, that means the same thing to you psychologically. I know what it means to you because I've heard you talk the same way as I talk about it. So you understand the depth that I'm talking about. But in my case, my success with the eagles and the falcons was a function of the fact that as they grew up, they took over when I had to go do the work that I could not spend the time with them mm -hmm. to get it done. Mm -hmm. So people say, and then I had three other or four other men, a couple of them went for PhDs that I put through college. At the time, they were helping me. Everybody said, oh boy, they've been a great help to you, Morley. Mm -hmm. It's quite the opposite. The only reason I was able to accomplish what I did was because they were helping me. Mm -hmm. And I will never forget that, both for my own family and for Pat Benson and Bill Burnham and uh, Bill... Uh, uh, already dead, and uh, Ronnie Penninger, and uh, they've just come on down uh, through the years, uh, on up to, uh, to this day that this is still going on. But the original time when we were doing this, when we had seven falcons to do Ida the offbeat, or when we had seven eagles to do Ida the offbeat eagle, Beaver and Tyler were the reason that who can keep and fly seven eagles. Mm -hmm. That is a major, major accomplishment. At the time, I didn't look at it because we were doing it. They made money to go through college while they were doing it. And then when we did uh, Rusty and the Falcon, we had nine falcons, a Jar Falcon, a Peregrine, and, and um, the rest Prairie Falcons. Well, and they were all magnificent birds, some passage hawks, some... Uh, um, uh, ISs that we've taken for uh, the purpose of this, but they were prairie falcons, second to none that'll ever be flown, that operated in that film. And it was because the film itself, we spent all day with the birds as they do in Arabia. Yeah. We got so close to them that we got some of these, these tremendously in-depth feelings about the art of falconry that the old-timers have had and, and some of us have had by nature of our own work where we just assigned it to one bird and we, we get the same thing. But here we were dealing with a whole group of them. So, and then the, the art of falconry becomes the basis to all of these points that, that have become so philosophical to me and to the rest of the world in understanding our true position in the universe, such as the imprinting uh, 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 thoughts that I still uh, know science will accept. It started by Carl Sagan saying it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's wrong, or he had another word for uh, having one word, anthropomorphism, and this uh, falcopomorphism and aguilapomorphism and animalpomorphism that I uh, talk about uh, are the are the basis of the knowledge that will give humanity in this universe the proper position to understand our true position with all other life, and therefore the conservation of the soil and the things that we all depend upon, including ourselves. I feel that this philosophy is that deep, in so far as I am concerned and so far as what I've learned from my family, and it was all based on the fact that the eagle, the most difficult of all, 
comes around the same way as the Falcon did, which I never dreamt would happen, mm -hmm. but it has. And that philosophy has come on out to where in the films, because of this in-depth, taking the jesses off of a Golden Eagle, anybody who's flown any Golden Eagle knows that this is one of the most hazardous things you can do in life insofar as getting seriously hurt. Mm -hmm. Because if you do make a mistake, you are going to pay with that 11-inch spread of foot and talon that they have to come at you and say, you made a slight error and I'm going to correct you. <laughs> and this is a, this is a very important uh, 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 thing that happens. Now, I, uh, these are the, are the basic elements that have resulted in uh, things that I, I, I never dreamt uh, would be possible. Based on this close family uh, unit, I grew up with a close family unit. I understood it. My my grandfather and my father were so close, and all of these things were the were the same way. So uh, when we finally put it all together, uh, these are the basis basic factors that I think come into the equation of well, how do you feel about and what uh, uh, did you accomplish? Uh, these elements are basic to it. When you start talking about what happened, that goes beyond my dreams because I never did dream that humanity could make a turn from the chicken hawks and the bullet hawks and the duck hawks to a point where they would support the depth that is possible all as a function of the art of falconry because that happens to be the only one, the only thing that I can see out of this is that happens to be the element that resulted in the intimate relationship that we have with our birds expressed through, uh, through the major films like the Paramount and the Wild Kingdom and the Disney films and our own films that humanity has been able to uh, come around to our understanding and now I am faced with this one that I just expressed, the, uh, the, our position in the universe. Mm -hmm. the <coughs> our position in the universe in understanding all life is down to where there is no young man or no old person who can see my relationship with Thor without saying, wow, that is a depth beyond which nobody be previous in the history of the world has ever had or felt or understood. And that, I think, is one of the great uh, 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 things that we've accomplished in all of this. And, and, and the same thing was true with the passage hawks, only to a lesser degree. The passage hawk is inherently a tremendous, fabulous uh, uh, bird and the haggard even beyond that. But the feelings we're still there, except the depth didn't go quite as far as the imprinting. And when you when you transfer the imprinting to the the lady with her putting her head in the killer whale's mouth, and the circus performers sticking their head in the lion's mouth, and in every case there were imprints, animals that accomplished that. There is no other way. There is no man or no falconer that's ever going to stick his nose in an eagle's food if it's a if it's a, uh, a, uh, uh, 
Haggard or a Passage Eagle mm -hmm. that was not imprinted. Yeah. There is nobody. They just absolutely, that's just their nature. They say, no, this is mine. Mm -hmm. But if they're imprinted and think you're an eagle, they will bring you the food and share it with you, as uh, old Fagan does to me right now, mm -hmm. this day. Now, the, these elements, I think, are basic to understanding our true position in the universe. And I, that's, it's that deep. There is no doubt in my mind. The data is irrevocable. It is, it is beyond any, any opportunity to change once it comes out. In this whole story, the doggone, uh, the, the bird's leadership, now I hate to get over in such a deep thing, but I can't resist it because it's there and it was started by the Craigheads with grizzly bears where they said it's in, in one of their articles they said it's interesting to note that grizzly bears don't kill each other fighting over sex or terrain huh? okay that's been in and they said they wrote that a long time ago 20-30 years ago Okay, I said, that's right, that's interesting. Um, well, things aren't doing that. Then I went down here to this canyon and spent 40 or 50 years in the detail every week of the year. I was down there and I watched the fights and the beauty and the, and the fabulous aerial combat. And when we started trying to film, I tried to tried to film and actually did some and I, I got some lessons that I'll never forget but what always impresses me and what now I'm trying to do a film on again using the birds because of their fabulous inspirational qualities in the way they live is the fact in the wisdom of the wild they don't kill for religion or politics or space that is one mighty powerful thing that humanity's got to look at. And that, and that was a function of seeing these fabulous characters that can kill things with such ease and yet when they know what they're doing and they're fighting over a place to live or where they're defending their young as the, as the eagles and the prey falcons do so magnificently, they never, never saw one kill one. Mm -hmm in 50 years of it. Uh -huh. And and I don't know that they ever do on that time. I think there could be a mistake, like when the bird goes straight down, but usually the one that's being attacked, they've made a couple of runs this way. Mm -hmm. So when he makes a mean one, the bird's watching, and that's what the red tail did that I filmed. It laid right back like this and prevent itself from being killed. Otherwise, it would have knocked his head right really off of it. put the brakes on. Put the yeah. brakes on this yeah. way, just this way, and he can literally stop. Yeah. And so the falcon, he only missed then he was going so goddamn fast, you can't see between there, and he almost rolled him yeah. of the back thrust of his vertical dive. Mm -hmm. I, I haven't looked at that roll field by field. I was only shooting 50 frames a second. That's all I had in that camera. But I had that son of a bucket, 200 frames a second, I would have had another $10,000. But that's an impossible case because he was chasing things, everything, and I was just lucky to cover it at all. Mm -hmm. But now, you see, this is where, this is where I think uh, the, the, the imprinting, the imprinting, 
and the, the knowledge that we are putting together and all of these people that are doing it, there is a wisdom of the wild that is philosophically important to humanity, in my opinion. It's got to be. Because I've been to war, and I've seen how silly that is. I've shot men that I would ski with. Or hit them with the bayonet, Johnny be quick or dead, because there wasn't else I could do. And I couldn't shoot back the first time they hit me. I thought, what are they shooting at this poor little bastard comes off in North Dakota? You know? And then they knocked the guy over next to me. All at once it said, Johnny, it should be quick or dead, boy. From here on out, every time something happened, there's going to be no... And to this day, nobody scares me with... If anybody threatens me or my family or my dog with life, their life is in danger. I'll guarantee you, they would <laughs> never live through it because I have been there. And when your soul gets up to the kind of coordination that it takes to Johnny be quick or dead, nobody can beat you. That isn't there. <laughs> They're not there yet, you see, in that kind of a fight. And that's the way these damn falcons look at it. And the eagle, too. He just comes up there and says, Okay, buddy, it's either you or me now, goddammit. And he's ready and you are not. This but is the other one in that case knows. Yep. Like the red tail. Yep. When you got the vertical stoop out of Thor, yep. the red tail knew it was time it was by God to quit. Quit. Yeah. And just say to hell with you. Said, I'm not going to fight this way. See, no, 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 there's. Now, when you put all that together and you throw in the wolves and the mountain lions do the same thing, yeah. they go around and wee-wee on all the corners and all of them got to stay away. Yeah. If they don't, they fight, but they don't kill each other. We had, we had nine radios on these mountain lions, Morris Hornacher and I, and they never fought to the death. Oh, they made a racket, and Christ, you could hear it for 40 miles. But, oh, Jesus Christ, all kinds of noise, but they never killed each other. In other words, it, under, there is a wisdom of the wild in there that's got to be. So now this is why I'm, I'm, I'm sharing all of this with you because I think it's a good place that I'm going to go on. But also I might jump over the Great Divide someday without ever recognizing what it is. And some of these things that you're putting down, there are other men like yourself and others are going to grab onto this and carry on and say, by God, we ought to look into this a little deeper and see what the hell was that guy talking about now. Is it really scientifically that stout? In my opinion, there's no goddamn doubt about it. Mm -hmm. But, again, like you said before, and like the Craig has said, somebody has to put those numbers to it. Now, rather than putting it to numbers from my position and my age, I would rather put it on film and change the whole world and not have to have a number. Yeah. Because that just skips it all. And that's what we did with the power line research. When I took that eagle, I knew what those eagles would do. And everybody was an eagle expert. And here they hired the great eagle man, they said, to do this thing, to find out if there was a problem, if there was a problem, and if there was a problem, can you solve it? Now that's what they came to me with. Not what everybody thinks that I went down and beat on their head and said, God damn it, you quit electrocuting my eagles. I never did that once. They came to me, see. No. Then, when we got to doing this, I knew that everybody was an eagle expert that had shot an eagle off a power line. And there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of them that probably have. And they all were experts about what this would be. And if you took and went there as a scientist and put these numbers and measured and this and that, you'd be talking. I said, I wouldn't even touch this without putting it on film, which was the best thing for them or myself I ever did. I saved 30 years just like that 
I went to Oxford and, and I went to overseas with that stuff and 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 was published there and in 26 nations and that that was accepted in a matter of two or three years instead of 20 or 30 years mm -hmm. and I've been to meetings right here in the United States well everywhere I went where guys come up and say, oh, well, you can't tell me our goddamn gold name is going to go and live on 500,000 volt power line. I've been up there and <laughs> all this noise. I'm a bunch, a bunch of crap. You're really all, you know, all kinds of experts talking. And then when I showed the little guys and the mother feeding their young and going over there and measuring the electromagnetic feed on the hold above 500,000 volts, I never had one man come up and say they wouldn't do it. And today I got the publication of last year. And the eagles on the power lines are more successful than natural iris by damn near twice. Hmm. The reason is I put the sunshade, yeah. which is a wind shade, mm -hmm. and they're up away from the other predators, and humanity doesn't go near them. Yeah. But what they're talking about is the natural kill of the sun on the south-facing slope, yeah. and the ravens taking their eggs and the great horned owls grabbing their young and all the rest of it. See. So here they put that in a bullet, and they got more, twice as, three times as many fruitless hawks living on the platforms as in the in the canyon or in the area. Hmm. Now, well, that that's just another thing you see that 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 uh, that I saw yeah. that I could design a wind shade and a sun shade that allowed the birds to have the sun when they needed it in a cold spring. Mm -hmm. And yet, get out of the sun when it got too hot in a hot year. So they never got. We've never had one die. In 24 years now, we've been watching them. And this is a. It's just a whole line from Marlin in, uh, in Wyoming to Oregon that we're talking about. Pretty significant thoughts that they've been doing. But again, it always goes back to understanding the 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 eagles themselves in the way they were going to do it and the way they were thinking and, and they were trying to live on those uh, power lines. I saw that and they had some that uh, were successful. But it was obvious to me if I made uh, out of metal or out of thing and put the sticks on it so that they uh, had a, an inclination and when we put the line up we had three eagles living on the power lines before we got the lines up, after we got the towers and the nest yep. up. So we had to stop putting the lines up till they hatch their eggs. <laughs> now that's a wonderful thing from the standpoint of what you and I understand, that we would know enough about that to put that together and it would be that good. And as we, there are 30 iries right here within 70 miles of Boise of eagle iries that I know have been run out of their ancestral homes by humanity. Mm -hmm. Well, probably 10 or 15 of them are taken up on the power lines. I don't know how many, but they've got them. There's probably that that have gone, plus they've shifted. But the point is, this brings out a new intelligence by humanity, just like we're doing with other things, to allow for uh, the raptors to be understood. And we've got boxes with paragons on the, on the cities and all these things. Humanity is really coming around this, this, this makes me smile because uh, because of all this work that we've done as falconers, we're going to always have any raptor that we want or need. 
or that's inspirational to humanity. All we have to have is a want, and we can do it. And that's that's a beautiful uh, that's a, a beautiful thing. was Kent Carney speaking with Morley Nelson in 1990, recorded for the Archives of Falconry. We must once again express our deep gratitude for the volunteers at the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry for the assistance they provided and for allowing us to present this interview as a portion of our oral history project. If you'd like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org slash dedication point. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle. <laughs>